Welcome to the Body Grievers Club. This is a podcast aimed to help those who are struggling to make peace with their here and now bodies. I'm your host, Bree, a fat positive body image educator and coach. My goal is to help you feel less alone in your body grief. Join me as we explore the ins and outs of body image, body grief, as you find your way home to your body. Welcome to the club. So if you don't know a lot about me, if you're a new follower, this will all be new information for you. If you have followed me for a long time, this is going to be some repeatable information. So I have always lived life in a larger body. And it's interesting though, because when I when I look at pictures of myself when I was younger, when I thought I was in a larger body, I'm, I wasn't that large. You know, I was probably bigger than my siblings and probably a little bit bigger than my peers, but I was also very short. And so I hated my body. I remember being eight years old and, and being in the bathtub. And I remember distinctly praying to God that he would do two things, that he would make me thin and that he would clean my room. And if you think about it, like that just sort of amplifies the childlike thinking that I had, right? This magical thinking that I was going to get out of the bathtub and just exist in a smaller body. And so I have been a chronic dieter most of my life. Uh, the earliest age that I remember being on a diet was probably about 10 years old. And so I remember the adults in my life encouraging me to diet, right? And we always knew the right thing to say. It wasn't about being in a smaller body. It was about health, right? We are trying to exist in this smaller body, not because you know, you're a bad person because you're fat. Although we never used the word fat. I use it now in a reclaimed way. For me, it's the same as saying short or freckly or brunette. It doesn't have the same negative connotation that it used to for me. And it's different for each person. So typically I'll, I'll use the word large body or small bodied as opposed to like fat or thin when talking to clients or referring to other people's bodies because I don't know where they are in their journey. And so the destination ahead of me was never thinness, right? My, my goal was never, I'm going to be a model. The goal in front of me was health. I was going to achieve ultimate health. And I can't find a word to describe other than maybe despondent of trying so hard at something and still failing. So I would try so hard to have perfect health, right? So that would include me following the diets to a T, following the exercise plans to a T, and then going back to the doctors and them still not being satisfied because I hadn't lost weight. And I have to tell you that it really messed with my self-esteem. I am not somebody who's going to 
argue semantics versus self-esteem or self-worth. But I will tell you that from a clinical standpoint, self-esteem is very much external, whereas self-worth is really more internal. And so, for example, you can have self-worth, but still have a low self-esteem. And that's sort of what I believe that I had. And I believe the reason that I had a strong sense of self-worth is two reasons. One, I believe I had some really strong emotional and parental attachments and not necessarily from my parents. Although if you ever hear me talk about my parents, I believe they did the best that they could with the resources that they had available to them. But I had some strong attachments in my life of people who made me feel valuable as a as a kid. And so I think that greatly impacted my self-worth. But my self-esteem was still low. I identify still to this day as a recovering people pleaser that although I know I had worth and value, I also still felt like, but I can secure the love I, and acceptance I experienced from people. And so I think the other thing that probably contributed to that self-worth uh, was my faith and believing in God or the universe, whatever you want to call her. I call him her God. And I believe that they are, you know, non-binary. Another episode for another time. <laughs> and so I believe that God loved me, but I still worried about would the world love me? Would a future partner love me? Would my family accept me? Would the doctors accept me? And that was what was motivating my behavior, was my greatest fear was a loss of love and belonging from folks in real life. And so to sort of fast forward a little bit, I remember I had gotten to my breaking point and my breaking point was I was 19 years old and I decided that I was tired of dieting, that it was clearly not working. And so the solution I wanted to explore was weight loss surgery. If you have experienced weight loss surgery, if talking about it is activating for you, this might not be the right podcast episode for you. So I just wanted to put that trigger warning on for you. But I had weight loss surgery when I was 19 years old at the influence of my family because at the time I was a medical oddity, <laughs> right? We didn't understand why I was doing all of the things and I still wasn't losing weight, you know, for health. And so I had weight loss surgery at 19 years old. And weight loss surgery, much like dieting, couldn't deliver on what it promised. What it promised was increased health, a smaller body, exponential weight loss. And it did those things for a time. I don't know if I would say that it increased my health by any means. I mean, I experienced a lot of negative things associated with weight loss surgery, which is very common. 
if you're familiar with the different types of weight loss surgery, I had the lap band, which isn't really one that they perform anymore. They are more likely to perform the RYNA, the one where they like staple off your stomach, and then the other one where it's like a banana sleeve, which they call it the gastric sleeve. And so the only options when I was getting surgery was the RYNA or was the one that I had done, which was a lap band. And it was a far less invasive surgery. And even still, complications I experienced from the surgery. My hair was falling out. I was certainly undernourished, was not able to eat. What would happen is I would eat and food would get stuck and lodged in my chest. And oftentimes, actually, this even happened with beverages, where if I drank too quickly, the beverages would kind of go down my system a little bit like a Brita filter. So I'd have to wait to be able to drink. And so what I thought was going to happen was that I was going to start shedding these pounds. I was prepared for the restriction and then I was going to stop hating my body. And guess what? It didn't work. It was never going to work a little bit of a tangent. One of the things that I'll encourage my clients to look at now is look at folks who get plastic surgery. It's not usually one plastic surgery that they get. It's multiple because part of with body dysmorphia and hating your body and looking at parts of your body and zeroing in on it to want to change individual parts, what happens is we become hyper-focused on it. You know, like that feeling when you say a word and you're like, that word sounds wrong. And then you say it over and over and over again. You're like, is that even the right word? I think the same thing happens in our brains with our bodies is we are looking at a part of our body and we're convinced it's wrong. And so then we are doing everything we can to fix it. And then it's a different part of our body. And then it's a different part of our body. And so we're stuck in this cycle of trying to fix different parts of our bodies. And so fast forward, I am in graduate school. I am still actively, you know, working on my body for health. And I began working at an eating disorder recovery center. And so I would say this is another part of my breaking point where I experienced what we would call in the clinical world, cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance is this idea when something that you're saying and something that you're doing are not aligning. You are living in opposite of what you're either saying or doing. And so I was working with clients who were struggling with eating disorders, who were actively restricting, who were actively attempting to pursue health and in a harmful way. And it was the first time I thought, how come they can't lose weight for health, but I can? Why are there separate rules? And it was the first time I began to assess, there are separate rules for me because I exist in a larger body. And what I will say from the center, which I'm very grateful for that I had the experience to work there and to learn from there. But what I would say is they didn't do an ample job at teaching about fat phobia or teaching about 
racism and how that impacts fat phobia. It was really focused on the here and now. And the problem with working on the here and now is you're teaching people, I just need to get you out the door. But what happens when we get out into the real world? So in our little bubble at the eating disorder center, yeah, we can say, screw it. We can eat what we want. We can look what we look like. And we have a supportive team to support that. But then when we get out into the real world where people are still chronically dieting, where people are still afraid of fatness, where people are going to judge you based off of what you eat or what you don't eat. It's a lot harder. And so we have to go back to the root. We have to go to the underlying fear. And so I quickly picked up on, while I was at the center, what's my why? Right? Why am I doing this? And my why was like, you know what's, you know what's not crapped on is health. At the time, there was talks about orthorexia, which if you're not familiar with orthorexia, it is the obsession with eating healthy because what we're seeing is folks who are using eating disorder behavior in a way that aligns with an eating disorder but yet doesn't qualify for an eating disorder, which let me just put a disclaimer on that the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is how we diagnose eating disorders and other mental illnesses, is deeply flawed. Uh, just including for eating disorders, uh, you can't be considered anorexic unless you exist in a smaller body. That's deeply problematic because there are plenty of fat people who are experiencing anorexia and yet we have to call it atypical anorexia because of the things that we've put around like the measurements of what somebody experiencing anorexia will qualify for. So that's besides the point. And so healthism was on the rise. I just didn't know it yet. And so I just began to focus on my health. And that, plus working at an eating disorder center, plus therapy, was really another part of my breaking point. And I remember my therapist asking me, but what does health mean to you? And I said, well, if I had to, you know, identify what health would mean to me, it would be, you know, exercising regularly, eating fruits and vegetables, and not feeling out of control with food. And she said, well, for all intents and purposes, it sounds like you're healthy then. And I was like, no, 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 no. I also need to be thin. And she was able to highlight the dissonance, once again, of, but that's not how you just described health. And so when we did some of this core belief work where we looked at what health meant versus what I was trying to achieve, there was no place in my mind that I thought I could be healthy and exist in a larger body. And when we unpacked that fear even more, what I realized was I wasn't so much afraid of not being healthy as much as I was afraid of not being accepted. I was afraid that my doctors would judge me. I was afraid that I wouldn't find love, that no person, no man would love me for the body that I exist in. And it was hard for me to accept this. I wasn't ready to accept this. And one of the things that she said to me 
was I would diagnose you with depression in the area of body image. And that is how I developed the concept of body grief. Because it felt a lot like depression. I felt sad, but I also felt angry. I felt stuck. I felt depressed. And I felt hopeless. And if you know my story, you know that I have experienced grief in real life. And there was nothing other than grief that could describe what I was going through quite like this. And so one of the things that I did when I realized I'm grieving is I wrote a grief letter to myself of all of the things that I would be giving up by giving up the pursuit of health, by giving up the acceptance of others, of my doctors. What is this going to cost me? Because at the time, I couldn't think of the benefits. I couldn't think of the things that would come with also giving up trying to make my body smaller. And that is how I identify with making space for grief. I wasn't ready yet for a reframe. I needed permission to be sad. I needed permission to allow myself to grieve. I've come up with a working definition of, of body grief, which I can't take credit for that the coining of that term because I'd seen it a couple of times, but nobody talked about it, especially in the health at every size space. When you look up the definition of grief, grief is defined as deep sorrow. When you look up the definition of sorrow, the definition of sorrow is loss that causes you distress. So my working definition for body grief is the loss accompanied with the intentional choice to stop attempting to change your body size. Let me read it again for you. Body grief is the loss or losses accompanied with the intentional choice to stop Attempting to change your body size. Yes, current day Brie can tell you all of the benefits of giving up intentional weight loss. But we need to make space for the grief, for the losses that come with that decision. Shortly after that moment of writing a grief letter, that's when I would find intuitive eating and health at every size and this amazing fat positive community here on Instagram. And I want to let you know that this wasn't 20 years ago that I figured all of this out. I actually found intuitive eating in May of 2018. I started Body Image with Brie, my Instagram page, in August of 2018. I didn't have it figured out. All I knew was that, you know what, I have this knowledge from my clinical experience and from my lived experience. And if I could just help one person to name the struggle that they're feeling, 
maybe they might be able to move through it a little bit faster than I did. I share this to show you that it can happen, to validate you that this is not your fault, that this is a culmination of your childhood, of your experiences, of your attachment styles, of your self-esteem. It is a culmination of your relationship with food, your relationship with your body, your conflict resolution styles. There are so many things that go into this journey. And one of the things I want to end on is I remember very quickly realizing this grief and being like, I don't want to do this again from the familiarity of the grief that I had experienced in my life. And grief often felt like that moment in the water when you were a kid, right? And you would dive into the water and you touch the ground in the, uh, on the pool and then you shoot back up because you're like, oh crap, I'm running out of air. And the more that you were like, oh my God, I'm so near the surface. Thank God I'm running out of air. The more you realize I'm not anywhere near the surface. And the fear is I'm going to get stuck and I'm going to drown, that this grief is going to kill me. And that moment between, oh my God, I'm going to die, to the moment you reach the surface, that is grief. And it sucks when you're going through it. And so if that's you, if you are grieving your body or you're just beginning to learn about all of these things, I just want you to know that you're not alone. You are absolutely not alone and grieving sucks, but you don't have to grieve alone. There is a community of people here who are on the same journey as you. And so I'll, I'll end with this. There, there was this um, analogy that I came up with when I was in the height of my grief. And I told my, my therapist, it feels like you're telling me that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and I can't see it. And so I walked that lonely, dark road with my therapist, but mostly alone. And so what I want to tell you is I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I will come into the tunnel with you because you are not alone and you don't have to do this alone. So I thank you so much for joining me today. I hope this was helpful. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Body Grievers Club. This podcast was made possible by my Body Grievers Club membership. If you like what you heard today, you can leave us a review and you can share this episode with all of your friends. If you're interested in learning more about how you can work with me, check out the link in my bio on my Instagram page at Body Image with Brie or my website at bodyimagewithbrie.com. Thank you again for being here, friends. Until next time.